Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thank you so much for joining us. We've got a wonderful episode here for you to enjoy, especially if you're a big fan of incredible jazz music. Our guest today is the incomparable Lila Bialy, an internationally acclaimed multi-award-winning Canadian singer-songwriter, pianist, and national radio host who's headlined major music festivals and venues spanning five continents. Lila has worked with countless artists over the years, most notably touring with music legends Chris Boddy, Paula Cole, and Suzanne Vega. And she's also recorded with and supported international icon Sting as one of his backup singers. And today, Lila joins us from her home outside of Toronto for a look back at her successes and to bring us up to speed on what she's working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy Now presents you with your Backstage Pass. Are you still recording through all this COVID stuff? Are you doing like well, virtual yeah. stuff? Yeah, so, so I mean, in full disclosure, um, I think we're a little burnt out on live streams, which require a different level of technical support. But I married not only my drummer, but um, a, an engineer, a studio engineer and producer. So in our basement, um, we have a fairly fully equipped studio. And Ben um, will just run the cables upstairs to where our little uh, upright piano is and and he'll set us up for whatever we need to record. Um, I've actually even recorded a few singles since pandemic hit, um, just really? within within our own home studio environment. So I feel very fortunate. So wow. what do you do? Do you fly? Do you fly other players in over the internet type of thing? You know what? No. So so um, as you well know, it's like lockdown has kind of been in varying stages since pandemic you know, hit in March in Canada. So um, there have been times where we were allowed to have a physically distanced bassist in our living room wearing a mask. <laughs> oh, no, so, what I, what I, what I oh. meant was, well, if, if, if you actually like, because I've been doing sessions at my home where people yeah. are doing vocals and things like that remotely, and I bring them in and fly them into to the session. Yes. So we do, we do that as well, but everything that's not in real time. So in other words, we'll send somebody tracks and then they'll record their part from their home studio to our track that we send them. And then my husband, who's also a mix engineer, he'll, he'll collate it all, put it all together and we'll have a new, you know, quarantines, video performance or we'll have a Quarantines. new Quarantines. Quarantines. I love it. Quarantines. I love it. You trademark that, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. No, you know what? Someone else got to it before me, and I just scooped it up as my own um, after <laughs> seeing it. You know, I sort of co-opted the term because I thought it was so great. You know, it kind of encapsulates this moment in history. Yeah, that, 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 beg, that begs a record, Quarantunes 2020. Quarantunes, I know. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't know if people are going to want to hear, once we're beyond this, you know, I, I, I keep thinking, how much are people going to want to hear about it as this, you know, unique period of, in history that we, like, don't want to really think about, but it's a reality, and it, and it has informed the way our music is taking shape and and the way our lives have taken shape. So, you know, it's, well, it's kind of it'd be like there. Talk, it'd be like people that used to talk about the great depression and the second world war and stuff, you know, and you listen, yeah. you, know, you know, I live for the great pandemic, you know, right. I'm, I, I'm not long for the rocking chair of things to <laughs> destroy my grandkids myself. So um, I was going to say, so um, it's interesting. There's some friends of mine. Uh, have you heard of session wire? No. 
session wire it was invented by a company in vancouver and it's actually where you can record no matter what platform you're on if you're on cakewalk if you're on pro tools if you're on logic whatever you're using and everybody can actually record in real time wow you know Jane, I, 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 I don't know how they do it because there's yep. got to be latency but for some somehow it works well so jane ira bloom uh, the saxophonist, she's kind of an avant-garde saxophonist. So, you know, case in point, that works just fine. It's her and a bassist. And they did a whole album in real time, virtually. But of course, it's all, you know, kind of meandering, out of time, free jazz. <laughs> so, right. so the latency matters less when that's the case. As soon as you want a pulse or groove of any kind, I think it's really difficult to have everybody sync you know the way that they would in the in an environment together well you remember mark our drummer that we played with at the Toronto yes. jazz festival well yes. mark and i have a, a regular band away from randy bachman as well so we had we had this tribute act that we had uh, called atlantic crossing and we were doing it we we're going to perform at blue frog studios but it was going to be done oh, pay-per-view yeah. pay-per-view so but Here's the thing. So we're trying to rehearse because we hadn't played in all these months. So I found this thing online. Everybody downloads it. Well, the problem is the latency. So you start the song and what happens? You hear Mark, one, two, three, four. <laughs> right. And, and it's like, it's just going downhill. It's like playing with the world's worst drummer, right? The song starts <laughs> at like, you know, 120 within a bar. It's, a, it's 90. You know? Right. Yeah. Just, yeah. It was almost impossible to rehearse, you know. But I was going to say, um, talking about drummers, when I saw you play in Vancouver, and of course, you're wonderful, and I knew that, but I was so amazed at how great your, your, your husband is on drums. He's the most creative guy. Like, how he uses cymbals is not, like, he'll use basic parts of the drums, but come up, use them in backwards ways that are so creative, you know? He's a yeah, really that's... brilliant guy. Oh, I will pass along that compliment to him. I think that's a little bit what he's known for is this kind of hybrid of percussion and drums and not using drums in a conventional way. I mean, of course he plays this, you know, a drum kit, a standard drum kit, but he dresses up that kit in myriad ways. And let me tell you, Mick, when we went to make our first album together, we were still living in Brooklyn. And I have a photo, I have to send it to you or I'll have to post it so folks can see it. But um, the entire lobby of our building was filled with his various trinkets and percussion and like it was insane the amount of gear he brought. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where you had to get like a, a huge van to put mm -hmm. it all into a, a U-Haul truck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, I would always look at him skeptically, like, you're not going to use all that stuff. You don't need to bring house and home to the studio or, you know, and, and, but he would, and he would use it all. Um, and of course, when we tour together, you know, when we're not in a global pandemic and we're on the road, you know, we would have extra suitcases. We would have to bring on the plane <laughs> so he could have all his doodads. Wow. Well, I mean, it, 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 that's what he does. And it's like, yeah. why sell it short? You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is, but yeah. And, and another thing too, it's like, and his drumming lends itself to this, your arrangements of, of like cover songs 
like the way you stretch them and, and pull them backwards. And of course your inversion cords and all these things that you use are just so incredible. It's like, it's amazing oh. what you turn a simple Neil Young song into, you know, <laughs> it's <laughs> unbelievable. You. Well, you know, sometimes to the chagrin of Neil Young fans, right? Because I, I think um, some people love that it's a, a unique offering you know unique arrangement but others for them the original song the original version is sacred and so they're like right. why would you you know tear down and rebuild and repaint this heritage home you know um but i love to do it and uh um and it's always fun when i meet people like yourself who who are you know ready to go on the ride together if it's if it's good if it's good, it's good. You know what I mean? It's like, um, like if you listen to Gotta Get You Into My Life by the Beatles and Gotta Get You Into My Life by Earth, Wind & Fire. Right, sure. You know, like sometimes the cover just takes it to a little help from my friends, Joe Cocker. Oh my God. Yeah. And uh, that's Beatles, which is sac sacrilege to me and most people, you know? Yeah, sure, you know, of, of my age group. So, but you still, you get those moments where it's that much better. It's like, well, go, it's oh like Lenny God. Kravitz on American Woman. I, well, I didn't like it. <laughs> You don't like his like version? <laughs> I, I grew up with it. Yeah. I really, you know why I didn't like that one? I mean, I thought it was okay, but to me, the signature part of that song is that guitar part. Da 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 da. That's the hook. And yeah. it's like he missed that entire hook. And I'm going, you know, it, it, there should have been at least an homage to that, I thought. I think I know. Whole, the whole basis of what made the song cool to me. You raise an interesting debate because, or point, and um, a point of debate, which is, you know, for me as an arranger, um, I've occasionally given talks on my process. And one of the things I always share is that for me, because you are really, at the end of the day, you're trying to honor the person who wrote the song, right? right. The original songwriter. And so I always look for some, some of that raw material that really gives the song its original character and transpose that into whatever it is that I do. So, you know, I do an arrangement of Coldplay's Yellow and their version has this like pedaling kind of driving guitar. Um, and it's through the whole song. And I thought, well, this is going to be a jazz piano trio playing this song. <laughs> How do I do that? But you know, and so I had this pedal point and I changed where it was in the piano and it sounded almost a little bit like something Chopin wrote, uh, the raindrop prelude. But that was my way of paying tribute to this kind of hooky driving guitar pedal. So, right. yeah, I hear what you're saying, Mick. Yeah, it, uh, but but yet on the same token, I mean, I here's the thing, Scott, to, 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 yeah. to, to give you full credit too, is that gotta get you into my life by the beatles the the hook line with the horns is going da 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 da, yeah, da, da. Yeah. that never happens in the earth wind and fire stuff mm -hmm. i don't think it, i don't think that is ever enters their arrangement they just they changed it totally backwards you know but it but it worked for some reason it's like it was almost like its own song do you, do you, do you find so, when you do you find when you're doing arrangements of, of, of covers and all that too, you're, you find you're writing for an, a, a new audience to introduce them to this older music through a different versioning of it or, or imagining of it? Are you asking me, Scott? Yeah, yes, sorry, yes. No, I mean, my brain is in a million places right now because I was just thinking about, and maybe this ties in with your question, you know, so for me, I was born in 1980 and I think of a song, an iconic song, like I Will Always Love You, 
Mm-hmm. And so for me, the quintessential version, and it was the only version to my ear um, was Whitney Houston's. And, mm, and then yeah, to discover yeah. retroactively, you know, um, uh, or retrospectively, uh, Dolly Parton's version, you know, mm. it was this amazing delight and, and it, it just added a whole new layer to the song for me and, and even brought kind of a new dimension to the way that Whitney did it. So what was your question again to make sure I actually answered it? When you you do a a song like that where you're going to put your own spin to uh, an existing uh, uh, piece, do you have in your mind that you're, you know, the audience you're you're writing this for is actually a, a newer, younger audience that wasn't around when that original piece was done so that you're, you're trying to reintroduce it in, in, in your own flair or. Well, I hate to date my audiences, but um, the truth is as a jazz musician, a lot of my listeners are a little bit older, mm-hmm. um, often a decade or two or even more older than I am. So, um, but I do think about, you know, the music that I'm attracted to from kind of the more mainstream realm. And, mm-hmm. and I would say that like, you know, what, for example, what we did with Coldplay's Yellow, that did seem to particularly strike a chord with some younger listeners. Um, but I guess for me, it's even, it's not even so much about generation. It's more about genre. And um, for me as a jazz musician, you know, it's, or a musician with jazz foundations, it's exciting to kind of explore this space between jazz and something other. And I want to challenge my listeners, my audience, um, who in, are in large part jazz fans, mm-hmm. to kind of delve into, you know, other uh, corners of, of jazz or subgenres that, that stretch what the definition of jazz is. Right. Well, yeah, um, you become you become quite a conduit when you think of it because you know <laughs> because true, uh, I it's terrible to say because it's not really true and I know that in my heart. But jazz has the tendency to have an older listening audience. It's, yeah. a, it's a more sophisticated style of music. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you can bridge a song like Yellow, which is something they they'd never heard, or they if they did hear it, they might have turned the station. You know, because they'd want to, you know, they'd want to be listening to what they right. want. So if you can take that song, put it into their realm, and all of a sudden, and now, so the young kids are going, hey, this is cool. And they might listen to something that's more trad. And right. then and then the the uh, the older listeners would go, wow, this is cool. What song is this? And, and the grandkids go, well, that's Coldplay, Grandpa. Exactly. And you know what I mean? So... Uh... <laughs> exactly. And, and, and by, I think you said this in a way, you're also bringing jazz, like a jazz interpretation of a pop song to listeners who probably wouldn't call themselves jazz fans. And they mm-hmm. unwittingly are becoming jazz fans, you know, because they, you've given them something familiar to sink their teeth into. And I think mm-hmm. that that's critical because jazz it used to be the pop music of its day. It was the party music, you know, yeah. and, and, and now, you know, it's sort of developed this kind of stuffy reputation, but it's really not that at all. And it can even, I think, especially with institutionalized jazz, it can become kind of like alienating to the listener, to your average mm-hmm. listener, right? Like if you're not in the in club and you don't understand all the sophisticated harmony, then you almost have no right to be here and people will feel excluded. And I have wanted so much to kind of crack things back open again and, and invite mainstream listeners back to the table 
um, because jazz is meant to be enjoyed by anyone and everyone. It could be intimidating, yeah. you know, that's the thing. Is yeah. that I brought this up before, I can't remember who I was talking to, but I remember when I did the jazz tour with Randy, and Randy's whole thing was, he always wanted to pay homage uh, homage to uh, Lenny Bro, who yeah. was his, his guitar, you know, the, the, the great Lenny Bro. Everybody talks about, I mean, he was just one of the best guitarists that's ever been on the planet. Yeah. Randy took lessons from him. He's always wanted to say... Wow. You know, I've always, well, yeah, well, that was Randy's principal teacher. That's why he wrote Undone and all that stuff. And there's all his Lenny Bro lessons. Oh, man. So, so, so before I started working with Randy, he was recording this, this uh, jazz album with a bunch of jazz cats. So I, in 2004, we went out on tour and I played that thing. I never played jazz before and I never played that <laughs> thing before either. And my, my, my very first show was playing that thing on, on live at the rehearsal hall on Bravo. I've, first time ever playing it is on a live. Wow. Oh God. Was, anyway. So regardless, we played at the top of the Senator in Toronto. And of course, the, the, the next day you see the write-ups come in. And of course, the write-up is from this jazz guy who yeah. basically pans the whole thing because right. what's how dare Randy Backman do this? He's a rock guy. He's not a jazz guy. Oh. And that's the problem is the intimidation factor. Instead of saying, hey, welcome to the club. Nice try, buddy, you know, or whatever. Yeah. 100%. You know, instead of just slapping them down, you know. 100%. And I have struggled, you know, with even my place in jazz, because I've, I've always been attracted to and loved, you know, what we call more pop music, you know, and, and I've often felt kind of guilty about that as a jazz musician or embarrassed, you know, to say <laughs> to my peers and, and listeners, like, well, actually my 10 year old son and I, we listened to Katy Perry and Taylor Swift, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> people would always poo poo, they'd poo poo this, the pop music, um, as if it was un, like just not sophisticated, it's only four chords and, but there's a craft to it as well. Right. And it is a craft that I think demands our respect, no matter how trained one is as a, as a musician. Your son's name is Josh, right? Josh. Yeah. And, and, and he, did you just say he's 10? He's 10. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so I, I can't believe it's been that long since we worked together. Because I mean, he, I, I think he was—he was barely older than a toddler. I think when I worked with you, is he your roadie? Not old. He's right. your roadie. Um, yeah, I mean, you know what? He is—he's quite the strapping young man. We, my husband and I, were just looking at him the other day, going, "What happened?" Like he's just shot up. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that he will be a roadie, or at least, or maybe in the band at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it definitely comes from that genetic code, you know. There's no <laughs> like doubt. it or not. And speak, <laughs> yeah. speaking, speaking of which, I got to get back to that. So how does somebody become like you? What's, I want to get into your story, how you become this, this jazz performer in a world that, mind you, it's opening up. I mean, there's, you know, there's yeah. Esmeralda Spalding and, yes. and all these great women jazz players, you know, not to mention Diana Krall, of course. And it, I mean, there always has been great women jazz singers from the Ella Fitzgeralds and, you know, yeah. Billy Holidays, whatever, all this stuff down the road. But now it's the instrumentalists as well. Yeah. And so I got it. Okay. I got to get back to your story. So you were, you were born in North Vancouver, correct? Lionsgate Hospital, North wow. Vancouver. <laughs> okay. And so tell me about you. Tell me about your parents. Let's go back there. Yeah, so my parents um, are are both uh, from other countries. So my mom is from Germany, and my dad is from Egypt. 
and they met wow. on Kitsilano Beach in Vancouver. Um, if I recall the story, my mom was walking in the sand in her high heels and my dad <laughs> spotted her and he was like, that's the woman for me. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they, they, they courted and, and married and they had my sister. I have three older sisters um, and I grew up in Vancouver um, among the mountains and the sea, which I miss every day out here in, in, in uh, Ontario. And, um, you know, it's interesting. My family is musical, but um, nobody really pursued music really seriously. Um, uh, you know, between my, my siblings and I, um, I was sort of the first. Um, and my mom loves to tell the story of how I was three and a half. And, you know, of course, I was watching Sesame Street probably almost every day. And I climbed up onto the piano bench and tried to play the melody to Sesame Street by ear. And, you know, this is back in the days when parents didn't enroll their kids in every extracurricular activity you could think of. They chose one. And so she was like, okay, well, this kid obviously likes music and is drawn, so we'll put her in lessons. And so off I went to um, my first and only classical music teacher's house. Juanita Ryan was her name. She's still alive. And, um, and what I can tell you about Juanita, um, she was this very fiery Italian woman. And uh, she, she had a daughter who was a little older than I, and she had her daughter had the spectacular porcelain doll collection, which was in this room leading up to the piano room. So I would sort of pass by that, those porcelain dolls every day and gawk at them. Um, and into my, the music room I would go. And, you know, we used uh, the Leela Fletcher method, um, which was largely like arts and crafts. I was cutting out music notes and keys on the piano, which for a kid who was four was just kind of the right introduction to music. It was very tactile. And of course I was at the piano as well. Um, but it didn't take long for me to really fall in love with piano. And, you know, in those days, so in the eighties, you know, I don't know many teachers who um, were training young students in classical and other genres. It was just classical once we started really, you know, um, training at the piano. But it just so happened that I loved classical music. My mom was always playing CBC Radio 2. <laughs> it was always in the background in the house, which at that time was exclusively classical. And um, so it was in my ear. And, and before too long, I would go to bed at night with my cassette tapes. You remember those? I had my cassette tapes of like, you know, <laughs> Anton Archer Rubinstein playing Chopin's Nocturnes and Preludes. And I would imagine myself playing these really advanced classical piano pieces um, and delighting listeners the way that, that those songs delighted me. I mean, they would fill me with emotions I couldn't even describe at that age. You know, it was just this, like a, a, a I would be lifted up by the music, kind of spiritually, you know, and uh, I didn't understand what that was, but it was the best feeling in the world. And I never wanted to let go of it. 
Well, that's a fantastic thing because there's yeah. so many times that you hear, especially guitar players, where they get piano lessons and they hate it. But they, <laughs> you know what I mean. And so <laughs> yeah. that's where they end up going to get to. That's where they end up going right. to guitar. But in your in your situation, you punked a little Sesame Street melody. Your mother goes, "Hmm, she seems to have an ear for music. Get her into lessons." Yeah. And it was it was an instant connection. Yeah, like it actually was exactly the avenue needed to go down. Yes. So where are you at with the siblings? Uh, ages and, and is it I'm all the youngest. Girls? I'm the baby. My parents had me because they wanted a boy. I was their sort of fourth, <laughs> fourth kick at the can. And uh, they had a name picked out for me and everything. I was going to be called Mark. But, <laughs> but out I came. Another girl, number four. So my, my eldest sister, Susan, um, she's a doctor and dancer and speaker. Um, and then my uh, second eldest, Tanya, not my second eldest, the se second eldest sister. Um, she now goes by Nia. She's a painter. Um, and then uh, Vanessa, who's the second youngest, uh, is in Calgary. Um, and she's in the oil and gas industry. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the baby. Wow, isn't that cool? So was your dad, was your dad raised in Egypt? He was. He grew up in Egypt. I believe he spent some time studying in Germany. And so he actually spoke a bit of German. And his mom, um, I'm quite sure his mom was German. I wish I, I, wish I uh, was more connected with my extended family. His mom died long before I was born. So mm. never met her, never saw any photos. Um, but they actually came to Canada together, um, initially to Saskatchewan. So my dad is uh, an engineer. Um, it's interesting you talk about your mom uh, wearing high heels on the beach. You know, my, <laughs> my, 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 but I've been in Europe and especially like I spent a lot of time in Poland. Uh, and it's amazing. Women in Poland will take two hours getting ready to walk across the street to buy a quart of milk. They, they are, they, uh, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. They are impeccably dressed. Like we, I remember Brent and I, when we, Brent Knudsen and I and my band, we first started playing in Poland. We used to play games called, and sorry for being crass. We used to call it spot the ugly chick. Right. And, and, and because you couldn't. Yeah. You yeah. couldn't. Everywhere you went in Poland, the women were dressed to the nines. They all looked perfect and they all looked like fashion models walking around. And every so often you'd see a woman that wasn't all that attractive. And you, as you got closer, you realized she was from the States or Canada. Right. You know, because she, she'd be dressed in a tracksuit like most women would be in North right. America. You know? Yes. It's so funny you should say that because my boy, my, my band, who I call my boys affectionately, they love to tour with me in Poland. Um, I've played there a couple of times and I, I'll never forget it. We got picked up from the airport um, and we had, you know, an artist liaison with us and her name was Marta. Yeah. And she was like this Barbie doll, you know, and, and she was very petite. It was cold. It was late November in Poland. It is not warm there that time of year. And she wore these like little, you know, kind of go-go boots and a little short skirt. And, and, and what was amazing to me was that, you know, not only was she just this, you know, sort of cute as a button, she could kick but when she needed to get the job done, whether it was lugging all my heavy stuff up the winding stairs to the green room, which was upstairs, like on the third floor of this old building, she would just do it herself. She was so tough. 
And so it was that interesting mix of like this sort of uh, almost um, stereotypical beauty, but then like real toughness and Polish, grit. Polish women notoriously <laughs> are very, very strong-willed and very Ew. strong. But you got to realize that the men were off getting the living crap kicked out of them in the wars. The right. women ran everything. Yeah. So th yeah. they they really are. Mark married Tough a Polish stock. girl. Mark, Mark, actually, the very okay. first night, very first night we played in Poland, he met his future wife, and her name you is. You're kidding. Yeah, and her name is Dorota, which is Polish. Dorota. For, for, it's like Dorothy. <laughs> right. right. So yeah. of course, Fred Turner. We were touring, touring with Bachman and Turner. He could never get her name right. He could never <laughs> figure. He could never get Dorota right. He finally <laughs> said. Finally, he kept calling her Dorito. Oh no! More than a nacho. Yeah, and it just—it so just got to the point where Dorota just goes, "Oh, whatever. Okay, I'm Dorito." <laughs> but of course, everybody in 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 those European blocks. I mean, I think I think Dorota speaks like four languages, and like you it's know, extraordinary. Cool, you know? yeah, it's extraordinary. It's, it's a whole different thing. And also going back to your dad, I remember I, I did an army thing and I went to Cairo and wow. I think the, 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 well, we went to Egypt, but I remember going to Cairo cause they, they brought us to the pyramids and all that sort of stuff. But I remember going to Cairo and Cairo, the city of Cairo has almost a population of Canada in it. It's a massive, massive yeah. city. I counted one traffic light, one, they are nuts there. They, yeah. I've never seen such a mess of traffic and accidents, cars pulled over, smashed against, and just left there. <laughs> wow. It's, it's the most incredible place. And then we were supposed to go play. I, sorry, I'm off on a tangent, but it's kind of a worthwhile story. We were, we were supposed to go play up in the Sinai Peninsula for the troops. There's 5,000 troops up in the Sinai Peninsula, about 10 miles away from the Gaza Strip. Now, they said we can't travel at night. So I'm thinking, well, oh, probably because there was Al Qaeda and all that stuff through right. there, which is true. There is Al Qaeda all the way yeah. along that whole thing. You know, there's armed guards helping you and all this stuff and giving you escorts as you're going up by bus. But the real reason why is because Egyptians don't like to use the headlights on their cars at night because it might wear them out. <laughs> so, so you're driving and you won't even see the cars. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's such a bizarre country. It really is a bizarre country. Well, you know, you're shedding some light on why he became an engineer, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> the need was great. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, but what yeah, it was it was a great trip. Anyway, okay, I gotta get back to this. So so you're a, you're playing classical music, and how does that involve into a jazz? style where, where where does the jazz thing come in oh oh by the way so you started playing piano when you were three or four yeah so so just casually three and a half and then um officially you know formally in lessons at four okay. yeah so i was young but the funny thing mick is that you know i've since met other people who um did the suzuki method as violinists right. and and piano as well and um they start when they're like two. So I thought I was young, but yeah. apparently I wasn't that young compared to- you Oh know, yeah, the violins are this big. I yeah. mean, it's really extraordinary. Yeah. So yeah, I um, how I uh, came to jazz is this very interesting story. Uh, it's a sad story that ultimately has a silver lining. So um, I was an aspiring concert pianist. I actually, you know, my heroes were Evgeny Kissin and, um, you know, all these incredible contemporary concert pianists and Evgeny especially stuck out, uh, stuck out for me because he was, um, 
young. He was relatively young. He's a great Russian pianist. And um, I remember seeing him at uh, the Orpheum Theater and I was young and, you know, you get dressed up and you go to this plush, decadent, gorgeous theater and everyone's very polite. And, oh, it's, you know, there's, a, there's drama to the whole experience. Yes. And then, of course, the music. So I wanted to be a concert pianist. Um, but when I was 15, uh, we were on a trip down to Seattle, which was where we would do all our shopping, you know, growing up in Vancouver. We would go south of the border um, where my dad would buy like his electronics and, you know, and we would go shopping at Bellevue Center and, and, um, and uh, we always loved that so much as kids. And um, so very, lots of fun memories attached to those trips. But one fateful trip, we were rear-ended on the highway. So we were, you know, going like what, a hundred kilometers or more an hour and um, the car in front of us stopped very suddenly. My dad stopped just in just short of hitting the person in front of us. And then the person behind us stopped in time, but, but the person behind them didn't, didn't uh, catch it. So they actually bumped that car into us. But the impact was great enough that our car was a write-off and I was sitting in the back and I had really bad whiplash. And it was that in combination with a couple of other bizarre events. We were doing push-up tests at school. Like when I was back in school the following week, I had this huge piano uh, competition I was a part of where, you know, the adjudicator was from Juilliard and that was where I wanted to go to school. You know, years later, that was the dream. So I'm practicing and I'm doing these push-ups at school and I, there, was, there was accident, the whiplash. And I was playing the shaker in our high school big band. And I just remember my arm seizing up on me. And I was like, uh-oh. And that was the beginning of what, what, you know, after like years of tests and treatments, we essentially diagnosed as repetitive strain injury. But I have no doubt that it related to that initial accident um, because I always had this uncomfortable feeling in my, my right shoulder and it would sort of refer down my arm all the way to my hand and um and so that was a turning point i could not play these ambitious high level classical concert pieces anymore i didn't have the facility um so i started playing all these left hand pieces you would be shocked how many left-handed pieces are out there like ravel wrote a lot for just left-handed piano there's some left-handed piano concertos but it just wasn't the same. It was not the same. I was trying, but I was like bleeding on the inside, you know? Mm. And, and it just so happened that I was introduced to jazz by my high school teacher, Bob Rebliati, at the same time that this accident happened and my dreams of becoming a concert pianist were dashed. And so jazz kind of, it, it almost showed up. If you could say that classical piano was like my first love, that's just my husband in the background there. That's Ben. Um, hey, man. You know, jazz, jazz came along as like, you know, the first person you date after you break up with your first love. And so I was like not into jazz at all because I was still grieving classical and they felt so different from one another. But over time, you know, my, my teacher, uh, Bob Rebliati, he had taught Rini Rosnes, this incredible jazz pianist um, who went to 
the same high school a couple decades before me. And he recognized that the, the worlds of classical and jazz had to find a, a place where they would intersect in order for me to make sense of jazz. Mm. So he helped me bridge that gap by turning me on to Rini Rosnes' music. She had a robust classical background as well. Um, Chick Corea, God rest his soul. No kidding. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Keith Jarrett, you know, all these piano players who fully inhabited the world of jazz, but you could hear the classical influence in their playing. And so that just helped me connect with jazz, you know, and, and, and it helped me recognize that the two worlds were not so divorced, you know, contrary to what I had been told. Am I way off base by saying that classical music, it seemed like we get people like Rick Wakeman and stuff who are obviously right. classically trained. It seemed, to, it seemed to bridge to rock better than it bridged to jazz. Yeah, is that isn't that interesting? I, yeah, gosh, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that the, I was talking earlier about how snobby jazz musicians can be, if you'll forgive me saying that. Um, and, and it's really funny, you know, rewind a few decades and classical musicians were so sort of uppity and snobby towards jazz that Keith Jarrett, when he went to, did he go to Berkeley? I think he went to Berkeley. But it was like pianists, Rini Rosnes, same thing. If, if you were um, a jazz piano player or a classical player who, God forbid, dabbled in jazz, you weren't allowed to play jazz on the classical piano. Oh like my. they designated oh, wow. certain concert grants within the program classical pianos and it was as though you would somehow mar the piano if you played jazz on it which to me is just so ludicrous but it shows you how huge that divide was not that long ago so maybe that's why jazz in you know or classical i mean i would think classical rock would be an even bigger divide so i don't know what that's about mick but that's, well it's, it's yeah. interesting that re reminds me of you know when people say, hey, you got a guitar? You know, when you're young, you got a guitar? Yeah, can I see it? And actually, older people still say this to this day. Can I see your guitar? Yeah. Hey, is that a lead guitar or a rhythm guitar? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's like they think there's a specific guitar for lead and a specific, right. not really. <laughs> now, here's something, I brought this up before. Maybe you might know this because you've been schooled and you've been in this, there's, there's left-handed instruments but there's no left-handed piano. Right. And I often wonder, like a guy like Paul McCartney who's left-handed, does, ah. does that make his left hand more advanced than the regular left hand? Like my left I hand is, so. like, is like sausage fingers, right? On the keyboard, it's terrible. I think so. You have, I mean, you have to, trying to kind of accomplish an, an ambidextrous, um, ambidextrous facility at the piano, I think is kind of, built into well that's where that's where the learning. hand exercises come in right well that's it right exactly yeah. but but um you know there's no doubt that uh you can identify anybody especially when it comes to like ragtime and boogie woogie it's like if somebody has that powerful left hand or like someone like oscar peterson you know or paul mccartney it's like you know the way that they approach that the left hand of the piano i think is probably more involved more rigorous than your average player um, even though I think we're all trained to try to give that left hand, you know, an equal measure of attention. <laughs> right. Uh, how old were you when that accident happened, by the way? 
I was 15. So we're oh really, my God. So really right, like just, just on the time. cusp. Oh exactly. My, oh my God. Oh, how yeah. heartbreaking. It was, oh, I mean, it led to, it led to depression for me. And so not only did I have to fight the injury itself, but I had to fight, you know, this sort of mental strain and anguish, which is already at its heights when you're a teen an, an angsty or angsty teenager. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you discover jazz and it, it gets bridged. And so now what happens from there? Did you, did you ever play in a pop band or were you always, no. was your first band like a jazz band? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, you know, so did the classical thing, which was always solo. Um, rarely was I playing with any, any other musicians when in the classical realm. Um, and then with jazz, yeah, it was, you know, playing in the, the big band and in small band ensembles and getting used to this idea of improvising, which was terrifying to me and still a little bit terrifying. Um, and then, you know, uh, as I went off to college, it became very clear to me that um, while I was able to get some gigs as a jazz musician, um, especially after I moved to New York City, which, you know, happened in my mid-20s, it became very clear to me that I was going to have to become versed in other genres. And that wasn't a difficult thing because I, like I said, I've always loved other styles of music. You know, I was already listening to other styles of music. I was listening to Bjork and Radiohead and, you know, Lenny Kravitz, who you mentioned uh, yeah. uh, earlier. And um, so, uh, and I guess, you know, classical musicians were often criticized for not being able to like, establish a good pocket at the piano right like very right. often classical musicians are criticized for not being able to play with good time <laughs> right. but i think because i loved and favored mainstreams mainstream forms of music i hate calling it that but you know what i mean for all intents and purposes um that pocket for me was there and the vocabulary was there i think for what was a barrier though mick and i had to overcome it very quickly when i got put into Paula Cole's band, which is where I met my husband. When I, when I was uh, put in her band, I had to learn how to play a proper synth and keyboard, like where you're programming all these sounds and you've got the keyboard going, and you've got the piano going at the same time. And do you recall at the gig with Randy Bachman um, at Toronto Jazz Fest that I was on a Nord and yes. it's just to just tell you how like non keyboardy I am. <laughs> I remember, yeah. I think it was programmed to like a Phantom of the Opera organ sound. <laughs> and I sat down to play. I think it was like either, you know, the Sade tune or whatever it was. And it was just, I came in and it was that Phantom of the Opera sound. <laughs> <laughs> so Daryl had to come over and help you out. Yes. I think. Yeah. I out how to how to change the sound myself but well, anyway don't feel bad don't sorry was that during practice or live it was no, that live, was live. oh my the, gosh the, the, don't don't, <laughs> don't feel bad lila because when uh when i would play keyboards for randy this back before tal joined the band i would play yeah. for guys and stuff and brent would take over the bass um i didn't know how to program the nord 
I had no clue. So, so Daryl, Daryl got very proficient in that. It was like, I, cause I, I, I'm a guy that I can pick a sound out on my computer. That's easy. But trying to go through these pages on these keyboards. Well, that's a, it. And, and there's, and there, the interface on every one of them is totally different. And I had to learn. So, you know, after I um, toured with Paula Cole, I toured with Suzanne Vega and she had an, an equally rigorous set of keyboard patches that I had to learn and program. And the, the gal who had preceded me, Alison Cornell, um, was just this like whippersnapper Swiss army knife. I mean, she toured with, I think, Bonnie Raitt and Shania Twain, and she would fiddle and she'd play all these keyboard sounds and she'd sing and she'd play guitar. And, you know, and she was just a total, a wizard with the tech side of things. And for me, it's like a totally different instrument. So back to your question about playing in a band, you know, um, I didn't have much experience at all um, outside of jazz until I joined Paula Cole's band. And then it was Baptism by Fire. And, and then, you know, after I moved to New York, I found I was actually playing more often in like kind of pop bands as opposed to jazz. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And so how, how did you end up working with Sting? Where did that come from? Like, I know I, yeah. I, I, I did one gig with Paula Cole. It was an opening of a, of a radio station in Winnipeg. I, no I, way. I, yeah. And she, and she was there and she, she performed and then Randy and I performed. We just the two of us. And it was like, just this, it was, it was like just right in the studio, but yeah. So yeah, she was wonderful. Like She's I, I so talented. Oh uh, yeah. And so anyway, so and by the way, I, I, I see, I thought you still lived in New York. I thought that now, when did you move back to Toronto or the Toronto fall of, fall of 2015? Okay. So, yeah. so, so, so not that long after I worked with you. I think it was before we worked together. I was already oh, really? living. Yeah, didn't wasn't it twenty sixteen? I feel like we played together in twenty sixteen. Well, you're probably yeah, you're probably right. But I thought for sure you were living in New York then. I could have swore you. You know what? Here's the thing. I we moved in fall of twenty fifteen, lock, stock, barrel. But but I was so deeply connected to the New York scene, and I had a gig working at a church down there, and they needed me to continue to like fly down every couple of weeks. And so I was still very, very enmeshed with life in the city and thought of myself really as a dual resident. Oh. Um, less so these days, especially post-pandemic. I mean, it's been eons since I have been anywhere, as is the case for all of us. <laughs> But um, yeah, to answer your question about Sting, so um, I was living in New York at the time. I had moved there in, in 2008, and uh, uh, Ben and I were, you know, dating on and off again. That's my husband, Ben, who I met in Paula Cole's band. And um, fast forward to the summer of 2009, so I'm living in New York, and as you'll so often hear from anyone who spent any amount of time there, there's this thing we call the New York beatdown, which is that you're there in the city, you're so stimulated, you're meeting people you never dreamed of meeting. You're not only meeting them, you're working with them. You know, you're you're at your local cafe having a espresso with Bashiri Johnson, who played with, you know, Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson. And he becomes your friend because you're, you know, shoulder to shoulder in the streets of Brooklyn. And um, so that's that's all happening. But the city also takes so much, you know, there's like living in New York is like 
guerrilla conditions, right? <laughs> so, and and the the crazy thing that I think a lot of people don't talk about about New York is that you're playing all these gigs and you're being paid like fifty bucks to rehearse twice and then go play a three hour gig at, at the you know, whatever name, whatever jazz club or, or club in the city. And so it's really hard to make ends meet. So I'm like, you know, going through the New York, New York beat down and it's, it's August. Actually it might've been late July um, of 2009. And I called my dad up and uh, we're having a heart to heart. And he says, Lila, you should probably just you know, admit defeat, come back to Canada, <laughs> you know, you'll have healthcare again, you'll have an easier life. But I was so attached to New York. I really was, I, I felt like these were my people, you know, where had they been my whole life? And um, so I start really seriously considering his advice. And within a couple of days, there is a voicemail on, um, you know, I had a landline back then that my roommate and I shared. And she said, Lila, you might want to listen to, to a message that's on there for you. And so I pick up the message and it's Lisa Fisher, who I didn't know at the time. And uh, she's very soft spoken, even though she, you know, she wails when she's singing with Mick Jagger. She's very soft spoken. Hi, Lila, it's Lisa Fisher. I got your name from Greg Clark. Um, I'm putting together auditions for a project with Sting, would you come and audition? And it was like, you know, within a day or two that I had to go to this Midtown studio to audition. And I remember laughing and turning to my roommate, who's like, wants to know what this call is all about, right? Because she heard it too. And I, and I think it's a joke. I actually think it's a practical joke mm -hmm. because it was always my dream to work with Sting. But come on. Like, really? Really? <laughs> and, and then I think, well, okay, um, for poops and giggles, I'll go and audition, but there's no way I'm going to get this gig because it was to audition as a singer. And I hardly considered myself a singer at that time, you know? I mean, I was singing, but it was still just always something that I had nagging doubts about. I wasn't trained as a singer. I had been criticized as a singer. You know, so off I went and there were a bunch of us, including Lisa, of course. And we just all, you know, like it was like boot camp for singers. Um, they had us in all these different permutations because they were trying to find a group of four who would sing well together. And Bob Saden, who'd produced Sting's uh, record, If on a Winter's Night, it's like this winter songs project. He was there producing the session. Now, knowing Sting, Sting was not there. But knowing him and how involved he is at every step of, you know, kind of any project that he's, you know, uh, a part of, I, I wouldn't doubt that Bob was recording everything and sending it to Sting to have him listen. Right. And Bob called me that night and he said, you know, we want to bring you back. And again, I just, what? <laughs> How, you know, and so I was brought back a couple of days later. I was even asked to recommend somebody. So I recommended uh, this young gal, Joe Laurie, who went on to sing with Sting for years. Um, and so it was me, Joe and Lisa Fisher and, and, a, and a few other people, again, just ro rotating, changing places and trying out all these different parts. And then, yeah, I got I got an email that said, we'd like you to come to Sting's 
uh, villa in Tuscany. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like just, wow. You know, pinch me. And, uh, and, that, and it was just, the, the timing was extraordinary because you go to New York City for the New York dream. And even though that dream was taking shape in like little small and, but significant ways, it still wasn't enough to warrant staying. I was still essentially a, a sinking ship. And um, so that opportunity came along just, just when I needed it. So off I went and, uh, you know, had the time of my life. He's, you, have you met him, Mick? I never have. Okay. He's a total gentleman. He's, you know, he's just kind, gracious, so dedicated, so dedicated. And um, it, was, it was just the fulfillment of a dream to work with him. And we're still in touch. So he's, he's great. I, yeah. um, we, we interviewed uh, uh, Jeffrey Lee Campbell, who yeah. was Sting's guitarist. He put out a book and it was Sting's guitarist on the Nothing Like the Sun tour. So oh, wow. Years, years before. And so he did the Amnesty, all the, the with Peter Gabriel, yeah. all that stuff back oh. in the day. So we were talking about that. And I'd mentioned that Sting, although I've always admired him and I have all his albums and I, I you know, I listen to them like a thesis to this day. <laughs> and, um, uh, that I was always afraid to meet him because I always figured he would be a nose in the air and I'd have nothing in common with him. <laughs> and yet then a friend of mine who's a makeup artist in Calgary, or pardon me, in, in uh, Hollywood, yeah. she said that she, there was a TV show where somehow she became Sting's makeup artist and she was with him for the whole day. She says, he is the sweetest, most yes. kind person you'll ever meet in your life. Like he exactly so the opposite lovely. of the snob you would think he would be. Yeah. And you know what? I think that, I mean, to be fair, I think that he was a little bit of a notorious rock musician back in his police days. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many of those stories that are circulating are true, but I think that, you know, after meeting and marrying Trudy and, and having kids and I mean, he loves kids so much and he's so good to his family and he's so good to his wife. I think that, um, you know, he probably always was a gentleman, but all the more so as he's gotten older. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a certain amount to that. I mean, I mean, I remember once again. I I said this in the in the uh, interview with Jeffrey. I remember seeing him. I think it was on Oprah or something like that. And he was talking about how he lives each day, wanting to prove to truly Styler how much he loves her. Yeah. Oh, that you doesn't know? surprise me. So he was here with the last ship um in 2019 and he had actually asked my husband and I if we would you know maybe put some jam sessions together while he was in town which we were so excited about it did they didn't come to fruition because his manager had other designs on his spare time <laughs> when he was here in Toronto but I got to go down to the, to the theater a few times and right there in his his kind of green room not green room is his dressing room there's a picture of Trudy prominently displayed. I mean, I don't want to call it a shrine, but it was just like this sort of sacred area he'd carved out in his dressing dressing room to honor his wife when they were away from each other. And I was like, uh -huh. wow, that is such a powerful message. Mm. So, yeah, McCartney, yeah. very much that like that with Linda. I mean, Linda yeah. didn't play in the band because she wanted to. McCartney figured, okay, if I'm going to play, if I'm going to start right. playing live, you're going to learn how to play keyboards because I want you in the band because I want you with me 24-7. The only time they were ever apart Sweet. was when he got arrested for the pot thing in, in Japan. 
Oh, I don't know that story. <laughs> oh, well, well they, they got busted. There's there's a bit of a rumor. <laughs> there's a bit of a rumor that Yoko might have actually done it in a way that <gasps> just yeah, because it was it was I I it's probably not true, but there was a rumor that went around for a long time that she might have done it and tipped the tipped the uh, the uh, customs off in Japan that they'd probably be traveling with pot. And apparently it was actually Linda's pot and Paul took the rap and he went to jail oh. for like a three either three days or a week in Japan. Oh, the tabloids. The only time they were apart. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And so they, and that's the same thing. And he, and his kids went to regular school. They never went to any private school. They went to regular old school. And when they, when he went on the road with Wings Over America, I remember the stories where he, they would be staying in hotel rooms. The kids were, chambermaids were not allowed into the room like uh, housekeeping were never allowed into the into the rooms because the kids were expected to make their beds they had a tutor on the road they were expected to make their beds they were expected to do this expected to do all that it was like they had chores a totally normal family he did not want the rock star thing whatsoever it's like the obamas when they were in the white house you know yeah. you, mm-hmm. michelle obama talks about how you know she had these teenage daughters that that's a really important formative time and she was like, I'm not raising my daughters to not make their own beds. No way. You know, yeah. <laughs> she felt it was really important for their character. And, um, you know, in terms of how they relate to the world, which is to not place oneself above anyone else ever, even if you are the president of the United States daughter I or know. a rock star. You know, I have I have the utmost respect, respect for the Obamas. I can't yeah. I, especially all the crap that they faced throughout it but oh. i don't want to get into that because it just makes right. my blood boil but yeah. anyway so um it was so anyway so so you you got you started playing jazz now you went to college you went did you go to humber i did yeah that's yeah and that's that's a famous that's like canada's berkeley almost well you know it is now at the time i remember feeling like it was kind of this no-name college and it, that it was like not at all the level of U of T, like all the really good jazz players went to U of T. That was my perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And then the people who couldn't get into U of T, which was a much smaller program, but that was again seen as something prestigious. You know, we all went to the trade school, <laughs> Humber <laughs> College, but it has really built up its reputation and now is considered kind of the foremost you know, jazz and music program in Canada. Um, but I loved it. I loved my time there, you know, the, uh, maybe because uh, it, it, it had a, a different, um, it was a different environment. Uh, the playing field between students and faculty felt a little more level. And in that sense, we could ascend you know, to imagining ourselves out there in the field in a way that maybe other students where the divide between student and teacher was greater couldn't. So it actually was a a blessing. Um, But yeah, I was going to go to school for sciences. I wasn't even going to go to school for jazz, but I got a scholarship. I was playing again with my left hand at Music Fest, big band festival, high school, big band festival. And Somebody from Humber was there as an adjudicator and he offered me a scholarship and I went as a singer because even though they'd never heard me sing a note, you know, I explained that I had this arm injury and they said, well, we'll take you how we can get you and, and off I went. Wow. Isn't that something? So how how did you get your right right arm back? How did I get to? 
where where you actually because you were you say you were playing left hand for a long time. Oh long yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I didn't understand the question. Yeah, yeah sorry. so you know what, Mick? It's funny. Um, it was when I stopped pursuing doggedly pursuing solutions to the right arm issue and stopped focusing on it and obsessing over it so much that it just got better. It's just such a bizarre thing. It makes me think about the connection between the mind and the body and that, mm. you know, as I was relentlessly pursuing answers and treatments, it almost put too much focus on the injury. And when I finally just kind of went, you know what, it just is what it is and got into singing and got into arranging and composition as other, you know, ways to express myself as a musician um, my arm just eventually came around, got caught up and, uh, and then it, you know, just got fully integrated into what I was doing and who I was as a jazz musician. And, um, jazz was like learning a new language anyway. So mm -hmm. it was like my arm had time to catch up because I had to slow down so much just to learn this new language, um, that, uh, you know, it wasn't, um, like the arm itself was such a huge setback, um, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. does make sense. Uh, now, you talked earlier, uh, there's Berkeley in the States. What's the other school, um, the, the big was, one? Uh, do you mean for jazz or Juilliard. for? Juilliard. Juilliard, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so now, is, so would you say Berkeley and Juilliard are sort of the same sort of, like you said U of T and Humber, would you yeah. sort of, is yes. that sort of the same sort of thing? Yes. That's the perfect analogy. I, and I don't know if it would hold true today, but certainly, you know, 20 years ago when I was a student, um, that was absolutely the right comparison because Juilliard was kind of uppity and like really hard to get into. It was a super small program, you know, like a handful of students. And Berkeley was a trade school. It was like where people went to learn not only how to play jazz, but all kinds of styles of music and people you know, didn't reject those other styles of music either. In fact, it was seen as an important part of, of building your toolkit uh, as a player. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I, it's repeatedly, the, 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 what's his name? The, the guy that played harmonica with Blues Traveler, reputedly he got into Juilliard with a harmonica. Who is that? I, I can't remember his name, but he is not a brilliant. William He's a brilliant uh, harmonica, harmonica player, whatever you would call it, harmonica. Yes. <laughs> but he actually, apparently he got into Juilliard with harmonica, the only one that's ever done that. Is he? I'm wondering if he's the guy who was, uh, who dated Madeleine Peru for a while. My, I think my Willie something? No, that's, I, it's ringing a bell, but. It's uh, okay, Char Charles. Charles is on it. Yeah. Char Ch Get Charles on is it, our, Charles. Charles is our <laughs> guy. What was his name again? Yeah, it'll be, the band is Blues Traveler, so I want to know the lead singer or oh. heart player for Blues Traveler. Now, you talked about, we can go on while he's doing that, when, when you talked about sciences, so you had other interests. What do you think you would be doing if you weren't a musician? I think I would probably be a psychotherapist or a, a, a psychiatrist. My sister is a doctor um, and I, you know, especially with the arm injury, I became very interested in sciences and healing and the mind, you know, how the mind ties in with the body. And um, so I actually got a, a four-year scholarship to UBC for sciences um, with a focus in psychology. Wow. Um, and so my parents... <laughs> When I went to Humber College for jazz instead, you know, my dad, oh no. 
But but he thought, you know, they thought I was just doing it for a year. I was told I could defer the scholarship for a year and, and then go and do the four years at, at UBC and not lose any ground. But um, but in fact, I decided to stay in jazz, which uh, I don't think I, I don't even think I saw that coming, you know. I, just, I find it I went, amazing. You were talking yeah. earlier about your mother listening to nothing but uh, CBC Radio 2. But it reminded me at the time, you actually had a show on Radio 2, didn't you? I was, still do. You still do? Yeah. So it's wow. called CBC Music now, uh, formerly CBC Radio 2. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm their jazz show. So it's, it's called Saturday Night Jazz. They, they named it and branded it. They wanted to make it really clear, like Saturday Night Blues. And uh, I think I'm on the, at the same time as Randy, but on CBC Music when he's on Radio One. Wow. So every Saturday, 8, 8 p.m. to midnight. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Oh. So Charles, Charles found out his name is John Popper. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got but, it. Yeah. Now, I don't know, maybe Charles can actually research that too and find out if he actually went to Juilliard. <laughs> it was actually the, the New School for Jazz yes. and Contemporary Music. Oh, oh New okay. School. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay, so it was a little, little bit uh, embellished. <laughs> yeah, he you know, he went, he, went, he went to Mars by car. <laughs> right, exactly. Isn't that what, uh, yeah, Perseverance or whatever just doing now? Isn't that just a car? Yeah, car yeah. to Mars. So, so you went to New York. Now, the roommate you had in New York when you got the call from Sting, were they involved in music as well? Or? Nope, nope. Oh, okay. I can't even recall. I think that was a Craigslist thing. Like, I oh, think no. I found her, you know, the way you do when you're in New York City. I mean, my first time in New York living there was at a nunnery. I mean, I ended up in a convent in the, in the cloisters in Inwood, New York, because <laughs> I couldn't find anywhere to stay. And so, um, you know, somebody told me, well, you know, you can get a little room, which was like a cell, but there were all these nuns from the Dominican Republic and they would say, querida, they call me querida. And it was so funny because there was a 9 p.m. curfew. And I thought, well, this isn't very helpful for an aspiring jazz musician. <laughs> but there I was living in a nunnery for about a month when I was first in New York way back in uh, 2003. It was November of 2003. So, yeah. Well, they, they, but they'd already cleaned up Times Square by that time. So yeah. it wasn't, oh, it was a it, different place. <laughs> it was. It wasn't as bad. I know my first time in New York was actually only. It wasn't that long. It was two thousand seven, and I love New York. I can. You're I can, kidding. I love it. The, my first time there was two thousand seven, but I remember no hearing way. the stories be, before with Times Square was nothing but porno places and. Oh just, yeah, and hookers. Yeah. Yep. They clean. They cleaned it up quite a bit. Giuliani. Yeah, well, that's probably the only thing he ever did that was good. I think. <laughs> okay, I don't want to get political. So anyway, so the um, uh, I now the thing about New York, I I remember you could be at two, three in the morning. You could walk through Times Square and you'd be perfectly safe. And wow. and people were friendly. I remember walking down the street one time and I was looking for something. And I saw these two businessmen with briefcases dressed in the nines, you know, the Armani suits, and they're animated in conversation. And I said, hey, I'm looking for this. And they stopped and the guy talked to me for a good five minutes. Broke up his conversation with the guy, says, hold on. He says, okay, this is what you do. And he goes through the whole thing. I went, this is that terrible New York where people would rather tell you to FO than, you know, give you the time of day. 
it's it's I loved it. I thought it was an amazing city. It is such a warm and again life giving city. People, you know, I, I know it's very different during pandemic, but um, everywhere you turned, whether you like it or not, someone wanted to chat. You know, and it could be about anything it could be politics yeah it could be what the coffee was like at that place or you know it could be where you do your laundry like it just everybody I think there was something about being in that city together and there was almost a built-in kinship um, just in living and surviving in New York City no matter what your socioeconomic class you know it was like all those divides came down we were just people New Yorkers trying to make a go of it together and and tourists would be brought into that fold you know i think 9-11 i think 9-11 yeah. helped that a lot i really yes. think i brought everything down so scott you wanted to say something yeah so did you find lila you know as an Im- import into the new york scene were they very accommodating and open to to people from other parts of the world you know and embraced you as part of their own or was Instantly. that hard to break into or yeah no Instantly, instantly. Uh, Toronto was more difficult to break into, even from within the city, like as someone who had gone to college in Toronto. And and I I mean no disrespect towards my fellow Torontonians who I love. Um, Mm. But New York, like I said, there was just this camaraderie right out of the gate. And I think people know and remember that they once needed that because mm-hmm. very few New Yorkers are actually from New York originally, right? And um, and so there's just this wonderful help thy neighbor or mm-hmm. do unto others as you would have done unto yourself ethos. And uh, yeah, so I just was embraced immediately without reservation. And it did, doesn't did, mean... Did, it, you, did yeah. you find that there was even an, another subculture because you're an artist uh, and that whole community gives another level to that or? Sure. Definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. Because, um, you know, I think that artists, of course I'm biased, but I think they're sort of the lifeblood of any mm-hmm. city, but especially mm-hmm. a city like New York. And, yes. uh, and we would band together all the more powerfully, right? Because it was even harder for us to make a go of it. Um, just, just by virtue of how expensive New York is, and, mm-hmm. and I remember you uh, talking about the fifty dollars. I remember you making fifty dollars for a night, but that also <laughs> included a three, uh, three rehearsals leading up to it. And it reminded yeah. me one thing I did notice about New York, and I think, and I think it's true right up until a certain level, almost like where you're at it a major TV level where you would walk down the street and there's comedians selling tickets to their shows that yeah. night. Cause that's how they make their money. Wow. So these comedians are actually out there selling tickets and, and because generally comedy shows, there'll be a headliner, but basically every comedian gets 15 minutes leading up to the headliner. Yeah. So you'll have, let's say six comedians all along the streets is peddling tickets for these shows yeah. for five, 10 bucks, whatever it is, just to get people in the door so that they can actually make a living. It's the great equalizer. Like everybody, if you're in New York, you're in the trenches hustling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, perhaps at varying, in varying degrees or to varying degrees, but, but everybody, if whether you're Sting or Lila Bialy or Lisa Fisher or, you know, whatever, it's like you... <laughs> You've got to hustle. If you're in New York, you have to hustle. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I, I, luckily when I was there, I was, I was working already, so I didn't have to hustle, but I sure loved the whole experience of it. It was yeah. just like everywhere you turned, there was, it was just, it's just so vibrant. I'm, yeah. You don't, Boom. Yeah. You don't, <laughs> yeah. You, 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 I mean, it's a city that never sleeps. You don't want to sleep. You know, it's like, yeah. I, I mean, I walked to Central Park and I walked down to Times Square. I remember I took the subway everywhere until I realized that I, actually, I could actually walk. You know, I could walk to Times Square, yes. to, to, to Central Park, to Soho, all that stuff. And just walk yes. and walk and walk and walk to the World Trade Center site. And, you know, and, and Century 21, the best, the best clothing store on earth. <laughs> right, for discounts. Oh, I know. my God. Totally. <laughs> well, and it's funny, Mick, because, um, and Scott, you know, it's like, New York, the, everything you just described, which is, you know, are the qualities that make it so beautiful and unlike any other city. Mm. Um, those are also the things that can make it untenable for people. You know, the, the like constant stimulation, the like not wanting to sleep, um, it being normal to, you know, maybe not these days, but show up at work or a gig with a hundred and two degree temperature because it just you just had to do it and 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 everybody there I feel like that line between work and play was always blurred which in my opinion is mostly a wonderful thing but um but it did mean that people would just push themselves to often an, un, an unhealthy degree and I mm -hmm. I think it's taken me five years of living you know more full-time in Toronto to kind of touch Exhale. base with yeah and like and initially i i really wasn't happy here for the first two years you know i laughed because i took up coffee when i moved to toronto because toronto felt so sleepy to me compared to new york <laughs> I, <laughs> I needed a stimulus and uh, and now i'm trying to like break the addiction to coffee but yeah there was just this need for stimulation whereas new york it was like it the stimulus stimuli we're there 24-7. Well, I live in Victoria now because when I, I met Kelly and we got married and she was from here. And, and Kelly can't stand Vancouver because she figures it's way too much hustle and bustle. And, <laughs> right. you know, and, 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 and Vancouver is nothing compared to Toronto. Toronto is nothing compared to compared New York. To New York. You know? Yeah. You know? It's like, holy smokes. But, yeah. you know, that's but that's a whole that's a whole different thing. I mean, she, Kelly would go to New York and and love it because it's she's going there as a tourist but That's to live it. there i don't think she i don't think she'd like it yeah I, a lot of people will say that they'll you'll hear that distinction new york is a great place to visit <laughs> but there's also a saying once you've lived there i think those of us who lived there and really loved it where new york was like in our bones and in our dna you know there's that expression you can take the person or the boy or the gal out of new york but you can't take new york out of the boy or the gal or the person I mean, it really is true. It's 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 still in my bones to this day, and um, we've kind of through through uh, you know the, the past few months, we've definitely really put down roots in a meaningful way in Toronto that we even kind of didn't expect to some degree. And I think for Ben and I, we were like, oh wow, like it was always in the back of our heads that we might move back down to New York. But you know what's mm. funny? Our son hates it. So he, he loves the memories of his friends and family members, like cousins-in-law in New York. But he, when we moved to Toronto, 
you know, we, we live in a, a part of the city that's like a little feels kind of suburban. And even though it's not, it's very close to the, the, the city center. But we would go to like the little strip in our neighborhood where there are businesses and restaurants and it's like very clean. It's not at all that densely populated. And, and Josh would always go, mom, I don't want to go to the city. The city's dirty. Right. <laughs> and I realized that the poor kid in a way, because he was hauled all over creation day in and day out when we were living in New York, in spite of himself, he didn't have a choice in the matter. I think it kind of mildly traumatized him because mm. He talks a lot about like New York being so dirty and it's like what for him, that's a big takeaway and the homelessness, like those things really affected him. And I'm hoping that ultimately that makes him a more balanced and compassionate human being as he gets older. But it's just so interesting what people's impressions are of a city like New York. Well, no matter the size of the city in Canada, you never see the trash piled on the streets for for garbage pickup like you do in New York. That was oh, <laughs> that was one of my takeaways. It's just the piles of garbage from every business, and it's incredible. And then imagine a garbage strike. Like they've had a couple oh, of garbage yeah. strikes over the years. I mean, in the dead of summer, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, unbelievable. So, I one thing I I. I I, I don't know if it just didn't connect in my brain and you already told me, but I might have, I have to ask this again. So you went to Humber. So yep. you were accepted from Humber. You got a scholarship to go to Humber. You went yep. there and then you went to New York from there. Yeah. Or did you, did you, now did you go back to Vancouver before that or was? Oh, well, so I had, you know, I told you I was struggling with mental health. Um, I really hit a low when I was in my early twenties. And so at one point I did go back to Vancouver, you know, sometimes depending on your relationship with family, um, for me, it was a positive one. So going home to my parents in Vancouver meant having them kind of dote on me and, and cook for me and help support me. So I was there for a few months at one point, but otherwise was living in Toronto. And then, um, and then I got a Canada Council grant to study in New York. And that coincided with, uh, you know, I had opened for Chris Bode across Canada and then was asked to join his band. Um, and he had the same manager, Bobby Columbia, who played drums right. with Blood, and, Sweat, and, and Tears. Blood, Sweat, and Tears, yeah. <laughs> I, and loved Bobby, his, I loved his yeah. drumming. Yeah, he was great. great. So he was, you know, at this point really producing a lot more than, he certainly was producing far more than he was uh, playing and producing and, and, and um, also managing. So he managed and produced both Chris Bodie and Paula Cole. He was kind of bringing Paula back to the music industry after seven years of, of kind of, you know, in the wilderness for her. And so I was touring with Chris. Um, I had replaced his singer, which was so weird to me. Um, and then Bobby and I met in LA on one of those gigs. And, uh, and it was then that he pitched me to Paula because he felt like it would be really healthy for her to have another female in the band um and so, so is bobby columby who got you that gig yeah isn't that bizarre i've always wanted to meet yeah. him i don't know why even back in the blood sweat and tears days when i used to love that album as a little kid there was something about him that i wanted to meet and that was way before he was in the business like he's the actual yeah he's totally magnetic he's he's a very big magnetic personality like you know a little bit like david foster and funnily enough i played a gig with paula at an event that was coordinated by Bobby and Dave, David Foster together. So there they were sitting in, you know, in the, in the, uh, the theater. 
and I'm there with Paula's band and Chris Bodie was there with his band and, and a new singer that was brought into the fold. And, and uh, yeah, Bobby, you know, Bobby made a lot happen and he actually wanted me, I've told this story in other interviews. He set up a meeting between me, Tal Wilkenfeld, the young bassist. Oh, wow. Yeah. And wow. Vinny Kalayuda. So oh, I met no. with the oh, two of them. God. He wanted to start, and I say this with so much humility because I am not the level of player of, of <laughs> Vinny or Tal, but he wanted to start this kind of super group um, or what he thought of, like he was trying to launch me. And, uh, and so he had this vision of me kind of being like a hero, Hiromi, you know, where it's like this uber fusion jazz player with Vinny on drums and Tal, Tal on, on bass. And it didn't take off because I ultimately didn't buy into the idea. And it's not because I didn't hugely respect those two players and admire them. And, you know, wouldn't it be in my wildest dreams to work with them? But it just wasn't what I saw for myself. I just knew even then that that wasn't who I was as a musician, even though I love, I loved that music. Like I loved listening to uh, Mike Stern and, and um, who's the guy in New York, uh, Wayne Krantz, like this kind of uber jazz fusion <laughs> music, but it wasn't me. <laughs> he, was, he wasn't drumming with Sting on the tour you were on, was he? No, no, but actually he asked me to play in his band. You know, the project I did with Sting was very unique. And it was almost more classical leaning. But then he asked me to, to play a gig with his band in Ecuador. Um, and that would have been with Vinnie Kalayuda. Right. And I couldn't do it because I had a gig with my own band in Japan and I was contracted and couldn't get out of it. Oh. Um, and there were a few times um, over the years that Sting asked if I would join him in like his real band band. And I, I just couldn't make it happen, which was a bummer, but... Wow. You know, well, yeah. it's nice to know that once <laughs> once you're in his fold, he's he's you're always part of his Rolodex. That's a nice he, thing to know. He is very much that way when you're, and it really it's like a family. You know, I mean, I will say that you can never take for granted that uh, that you're like in the family to stay if you don't kind of keep your chops up. And Sting is somebody who is known for putting his musicians kind of through the fire. Uh, and expecting a lot of them. So I remember, you know, in 2015, playing some shows with him uh, when he was doing The Last Ship. And that music is complicated, especially for the piano chair. That's, and that, we, that's, that's the stuff he wrote that were like, it was like English folk music stuff, that's right? That's it. And it, with, it is, it's complicated. Yeah. It's, almost like he, it's like he wrote it on a lute or something. It was like a really odd bunch of music. Really it's, like, really like, like seventeenth century stuff. It's Northumbrian, so he's from from um, uh, uh, la, 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 Newcastle, right? And right, right. Um, you know, and so he grew up with all this very sophisticated kind of Northumbrian folk music, but then he has all this rigorous sort of training and background himself as a musician. So we'd be in sound check, and we'd be playing this song that was cycling through all these different keys and my piano part was very specific. And then he'd go, could we, could we try it in this key? <laughs> and I would be like, Oh my gosh. And on the spot, yeah. you know, minutes from showtime, yeah. I'd be transposing where, on the where, where's, where's the transpose twitch? <laughs> well, yeah, there's no capo for the piano. So it was just like, you know, <laughs> it really kept me on my toes, but I think it was partly what kept me, 
you know, kind of in his um, orbit as a prospective musician that he would perhaps call on from time to time. That's nice to know. Yeah. And so not only, so you're, you were playing keyboards with him and singing. Yeah, exactly. So first I was just singing and then he discovered I was a piano player and I'll never forget I was playing backstage. It was um, at the Durham Cathedral where we filmed If on a Winter's Night, the DVD. And I, I found a piano and I was playing <laughs> and he came up behind me, put his hands on my shoulder and he said, darling, so that's what you do. <laughs> and it was like, you know, my secret was out because um, even though I was with him as a singer and I hope had earned my place in that capacity, I think he got the sense, okay, this is, this is sort of this, this musician's true character and foundation is as a piano player. And he was right about that. Mm, interesting. So, yeah. That's so cool. So, so now, so out of Sting, what happens at that point? Is that when you start pursuing your own deal? Now, oh, well, actually, hold it. Hold it. Let's go back to when you met your husband. When you met, <laughs> so that was Paula. Now, after, uh, Paula was before Sting. Yeah, 2007. So when you were in New York, that was mm -hmm. when I was cutting my teeth with Paula and had met Ben. Okay. And so, and, and you were on tour with Sting when? 2009. 2009. So, and then, so by then you and Ben are obviously an item. Everything's... We were pregnant. <laughs> so, so, you, so you were pregnant on tour with Sting? Yes. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, you know, I know, I know that uh, this your partners. If you have kids of your own, or you know, if your uncles, you know, you may have heard some stories about what can happen during pregnancy. But I'll never forget getting my first kind of bout of morning sickness on the train on the way to doing the 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 um oh what the view. It was the view, and we were doing promotional dates with Sting. And, and I remember just beelining for the donuts and I'm gluten-free, dairy-free. And I saw those donuts. <laughs> I, just, I beelined to everything inside of me went, you need a donut. And I went and I started scarfing donuts. And, and a lot of what causes morning sickness is blood sugar issues. So that was why my body said, you need that and you need it now. So I'm scarfing donuts and then, you know, we're called onto the set and I got through, but it was so funny. Nobody knew I was pregnant and it was in December. So I started working with him in, in, in August and Ben and I got pregnant in September. And the joke was, you know, Sting would just, cause he loves to rib people and, you know, he's such a stud, right? So when people would ask who Ben was, my, my now husband, Sting would go, he's the father of my baby. And uh, <laughs> so, so anyway, um, so I, I, nobody knew until December that I was pregnant and it was, it was so funny. He had, Sting had a stylist, uh, Robert Malner, and uh, who would outfit us for all these shows and especially for, you know, anything that was being filmed for Sting's purposes, right? And we were getting fitted for a big show at um, St. John the Divine, I think it's called. And that it's a huge cathedral in New York. And I was three months pregnant at this point. And Robert very tactfully went, um, Lila... <laughs> The measurements you gave me, you know, in August have changed. That's my son in the background. Sorry. So um, 
And then it was at that point that Joe Laurie, who was singing background vocals uh, with Sting, pulled me aside and she was reading between the lines and she was like, are you pregnant? (laughs) (laughs) And so the cat was out of the bag. And then I told Sting, and I'll never forget his reaction. He said this verbatim. He said, Lila, how wonderful, wonderful for us all. And... And it was uh, like, he didn't care. He was so happy to have me there, pregnant and in the mix. And, uh, you know, and when Josh was born, six weeks after Josh was born um, in, in June of, of 2010, Sting came through Toronto with his Symphonicities uh, tour. Um, and uh, they were playing the Molson Amphitheater, and he'd sent us a onesie for Josh, a little sting onesie. (laughs) And so I put Josh in the onesie, and I was side stage, and this is such a sweet memory for me. I I was side stage. It was the the, the thick of summer in Toronto, just humid, and little Josh is melting in his snuggly, And, and Sting is on stage with an orchestra, and Joe Laurie's there, and a lot of people that I had worked with uh, as part of If on a Winter's Night, um, Ira Coleman on bass and and Sting in between songs would come side stage and rub Josh's back and say things like, babies have the best energy, you know? <laughs> and he was just like delighting in this new chapter in my life. And, you know, the way that it kind of intermingled with, you know, working with him and yeah, it was like, I just, I never, I was always in the fold and always part of that family and still am. So that's, that's sting. That's yeah. just so beautiful. That's yeah. amazing. So, uh, okay. So I got to pull you out. This is like my, my heart's going here. Um, <laughs> so, so now, now I got to pull you out of the sting thing. Yeah. And you're at, so when do you start pursuing your career like the way it is now, because you would, you had a jazz band. I yeah. think. You, 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 did you not release an album when you lived in yep. Vancouver at one point? Uh, not in Vancouver, but I I released my first kind of commercial release was in two thousand and five, called Introducing the Lila Bialy Trio, and then I released another one when I was opening for Chris Bodie, um, and then I released uh, a CD with. Um, CBC Records when they existed. And that was kind of my first major release that put me on the map um, nationally. And that was called From Sea to Sky. That was in 2008 that it released. I pulled, I pulled, so I called some pictures. We'll pull them up later and you can comment. Ah, on so. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, and this is kind of a sweet story. So we get pregnant and, you know, um, it kind of rocked our worlds. Like, I remember, um, you know, <laughs> I, I shouldn't give too much information, but being in Toronto and and taking the test and, you know, it was unexpected. And I see that, you know, that second pink line and running into a pharmacy and, and, and saying like, what is this? What is happening? You know? <laughs> and there's a woman behind the counter that said, um, is it good news or bad news? <laughs> <laughs> and through tears I said I don't know you know and, and she said I'm on tour with Sting that was literally what I said she said how old are you and I said I'm 29 and she said very good age to have baby and and then I said but I'm on tour with Sting <laughs> and it was sort of like I I just 
knew that it would be a game changer, you know? And in the end, of course, it was a game changer. I wouldn't change for anything, you know? Josh has brought more richness and beauty into our world than I ever dared imagine. But at that time, I was like, oh, this is the end of my career. So what did we do? We decided let's make a record because the clock is ticking. And um, so I, I wrapped up with Sting in December of, of 2009. And, um, and here's a fun little side story. Uh, we were still living in New York and, um, uh, and Ben was actually approached about doing the Symphonicities tour. Wow. But, uh, and it was his dream equally to work with Sting, but he said no because it was going to um, overlap with the birth of Josh. And oh my God. First, yeah. And he was like, I'll be what, darned. What a, what a quality guy. Super quality yeah. guy. Super quality guy. And so, you know, um, for the remainder of my pregnancy, we wrapped up my next record, Tracing Light. And when I went to record vocals, and let me tell you, I mean, as that things are expanding, <laughs> it becomes more and more difficult to sing. Any, any singer will tell you that, right? That no, babe no, is no, Nothing like singing. using your diaphragm with somebody else trying to use it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. A little crowding. <laughs> like living in a New York apartment together. Yeah. And so, so the babe is, you know, taking up all the space, but when I went into the studio and started recording vocals, Josh, it was Josh's first kicks. And, and it was like, I was in there in the studio and it was like, he was cheering for me like, okay, go mom, you know? And um, so we got that album done. And then within months uh, of his being born, we were touring that album. And I, I just had this illusion that I would strap Josh onto my person and, and go all over creation with him. You know, we had friends in New York who had what I call magic jazz babies. And they would put the, the, the baby into a sling on stage and put the Pelter headphones on the baby's head. And the baby would just, you know, be on stage with that singer for the gig, not making a peep. Josh was not that child. Josh was <laughs> colicky. And, but I tried kind of foolishly to, you know, ignore his needs because I just was so determined to keep touring. And eventually Ben and I, you know, we determined that, okay, we got to divide and conquer. Like one of us needs to stay home with the babe um, while the other go, goes out on the road and we'll tag team and we'll each try not to be away for more than two weeks at a time. We kind of arbitrarily put that as the boundary because we right. didn't want to be away from our child for weeks on end. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, and so it became this dance, this little tango, you know. But, but to answer your question, Mick, um, in a way, Josh kind of Josh's arrival solidified uh, my reconnecting with who I was as an artist and who I wanted to be in the world as an artist, because I wouldn't at that point go out for months long tours with other people like Sting or um, I was asked to do a couple of other big tours. Um, one was with Josh Groban and I just, you know, it just wasn't an option. And um yeah, so that was how we started to really dig into back into my creative and uh, my own artistic endeavors. So how many how many albums do you have out in total now, including your your original uh, trio album? I have to count. I think it's eight. So introducing Lila Bialy Trio, Lila Live, um, Sea to Sky, Tracing Light, Live in Concert, 
uh, House of Many Rooms, Lila Biel. Yeah, Out of Dust is the So eighth. See the Sky, was that like an inspiration of that whole North, North Shore thing? Yep. It was yeah. my kind of my ode to Canada and um, growing up in uh, Vancouver. And actually, funnily enough, Mick, you, you asked if I had made one of those albums in Vancouver. Well, I didn't record from Sea to Sky in Vancouver, but I was actually compiling um, the music. I was asked to cover songs from mainstream Canadian artists and arrange them for a jazz ensemble. So Bruce Coburn, oh. Sarah McLaughlin, and um, Mark Jordan. And I was taking CDs out of the West Vancouver Public Library <laughs> <laughs> and uh, choosing songs, like listening to 10 Katie Lang records and 10 Bruce Coburn records and choosing my favorite to feature on that record. And I'm sure the From Sea to Sky Highway, which was just down the road from, yeah. from my parents' home, was kind of right there, you know. You, you mentioned Katie Lang, probably the most incredible voice ever to come out of anywhere. I could not agree with you more. Uh, constant, <laughs> constant Craving, that, that song, Constant Craving melts me every time I hear it. I've never it, heard a song to, to me that just completes me more than that song. This, the, the album for me is Hymns from the 49th Parallel. That to me is the one. Is that one the one that, she did a, a Hallelujah one on? Yes. She's yeah. covering other, she's covering Jane Sibbery and Leonard Cohen. Yeah, yeah. And oh, that voice, it's like velvet. You know, well, you well her, her, take on, her take on Hallelujah at, at the Junos that year. I mean, like nobody's ever done that. I mean, good I'm in Lord. agreement. I'm in agreement. And I love Jeff Buckley's version and I love, you know, yeah, but, yeah. but to me, Katie, Katie's is, is the one. She, she owned it. She yeah. totally owned that song. It was like, it became yeah. her song. It was like, yeah. she, but she seems like that. She seems to be like that with everything. You know, I've never heard yeah. such beautiful beauty and pitch and phrasing, you know, it's just unbelievable. And she's a jazz fan. So my, my friend, Cody Hutchinson, um, who uh, is a bassist out of Calgary, but he also runs, helps run and curate um, the YYC Jazz Festival. And he also uh, is president of the label Chronograph that my albums, my last couple of albums are out on. Um, he tells the story of chatting with Katie Lang by phone uh, fairly recently. And it, it had something to do with jazz and, and she is, uh, a, a jazz fan herself, which is, always delights me when I hear that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. She's, I, 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 I've only met her a couple of times, but it was, it was sort of being in the same vicinity, not so much actually meeting yeah, her. Yeah, like the, at the same the, festival or something. No, no, it wasn't that actually. It was oh. actually, it was actually in the back alley in, in Vancouver. And I think it was a triumph. Somebody pulls up on a triumph decked out in leathers and stuff. And I, I just assumed it was a guy and, uh, you know, and all, off comes the helmet and it's Katie Lang. And it was, uh, and, and also in my mind's eye, this may not have happened, but I swear to God, this is what happened in my mind's eye. It was like, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> that, so might cool. not have, that might not have happened, but it might've happened too. And then another time I was, I, I was before a gig and there was, there was a, there was a pub nearby. We went to eat at a pub and she was coming out with a friend and they were both half cut. And, 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 uh, but I, she was walking by, I went, Oh my God, I love ingenue. She goes, X. <laughs> oh, that was about it. my big, my big meeting with Katie Lang. Yeah. Well, it's but human. It's makes them human. Right. It's like, right. Everybody. I mean, they're people. I mean, they're, they're down to, not everybody is like this. And that's to, to Katie and Sting's credit. Right. Is they're just, 
they're so down to earth, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you know, McCartney too. I mean, you, you hear yeah. all these things. I mean, I've I've never really met McCartney. Like once in his vicinity, he said something to me, yeah, but I couldn't answer because I was like, but, <laughs> but the thing is, when you talk to like you hear interviews with David Grohl, and David Grohl says, like the first thing says McCartney knows who he is. So the first thing he's going to try to do with you is diffuse that. He's going to try to make you feel at ease so that he can be at ease. Because the further further along that whole stigma is that you're in the room with Paul McCartney, the worse it makes it for him. So he wants to get you off the hook. You know? Yes, I felt that with Sting as well. And and one of the things I did realize fairly early, fairly early on, and I'm not going to lie, I still struggle with it. Like I, you know, when I went and saw him at that theater, <laughs> I mean, I hold my body differently. I'm sort of holding my breath because it's Sting, you know, <laughs> and I will forever be a fangirl. But I really sensed that in order to hang with him and be in his band, like you had to kind of, let your guard down. And I'll never forget seeing Lisa Fisher jump onto his lap at one one time backstage and not in a scandalous or, you know, lewd way, but it was very playful. And I was like, now there's a gal who toured with the Stones for 25 years and she's just totally comfortable (laughs) kind of playing with Sting and having fun with him. And I could see his delight in that because he's so used to everybody's backs being up around him and mm-hmm. he doesn't want that because as you said as you so well articulated they can't be at ease when they sense that you're not at ease right mm, so exactly well we have had a fantastic interview <laughs> with you wow that, that, half, that half hour just went so quick yeah. i know longest half hour of my life no i'm joking i'm joking <laughs> Thank you so much from all of us here at your backstage pass. Aw, thanks for having me. Scott and hey, Charles and John and Dylan behind the scene and Mick, of course. Uh, Thank you so much to all of you for for having me. so much fun. Can't wait to see you down the road somewhere. Likewise. All right. Take care. Hey, thanks for joining us. Check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing. Available both on podcast and video on demand.